Oh, you know, I, I finished all of my water, so if you can wait uh, 30 seconds, I'm going to go to refill. Yeah, in 20 minutes, we're going to have to wait 30 seconds again so he can uh, take care of all the water he drank. That's awesome. We're going to hear his chair creaking because he's wiggling in it. Yeah, I know. We should have intermission music. Somebody gets shot? What? <laughs> what did I miss? This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 46 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week, we're going to be following up our discussion that we had with Jim Wyrick about six months ago about object-oriented programming in Rails. And this week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Hi, I'm Avdi, and uh, by the time you hear this, uh, my new book, Objects on Rails, should be uh, available for anyone to read at objectsonrails.com. All right. We also have James Edward Gray. Good morning, everyone. We also have Josh Susser. Uh, and here I am. I'm Charles Maxwood from Teach Me to Code com and uh, let's go ahead and kick this off. I know that you guys have been thinking a lot about this, and so uh, I'm kind of curious to see where where it goes. So uh, does somebody want to just jump in and start talking about something? I suppose we should mention Avdi's book, even though he told us that he didn't want to promote it too heavenly. Yeah, that's why I started out the show by by promoting it. <laughs> yeah, you, you got all of this shameful self promotion out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk about Avdi's book against Avdi's wishes. Yeah. Oh. He's doing. The episode under duress yeah I, I didn't get a copy of it so i don't i don't even know what's in it so what it must Uh-oh. be good <laughs> you're, you're not well, on the end list oh. i, I might have just well, shamed my way onto it everyone gets hooked up everyone gets hooked up uh, by the time this goes out so <laughs> <laughs> you, you releasing it for free online or something yeah it's 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 going to be free to read online and uh, and then there's a uh, downloadable version for various ebook readers for uh, for five bucks so after what made you decide to write that book um I think laziness. Um, <laughs> Aren't books a lot of work? <laughs> uh, I, 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 anybody who's been to my blog knows that that uh, it's named after you know the, the the three virtues of the programmer, one of which is is laziness. And uh, it was just a matter of I kept on getting into these conversations um, at, at conferences or or online and stuff about doing OO and Rails and things like um, you know the fact that I like to start out with just plain Ruby objects that model my business concepts and then sort of add persistence in later as a as an afterthought and treat active record as an implementation detail and stuff like that and 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 I'd always wind up saying well I'll write a blog post about it to explain what I'm talking about and then I finally started writing those blog posts and they got bigger and bigger and turned into more of a book so yeah it's kind of that's funny origin. how often I hear that happening where people wind up writing like a dozen or so blog articles and they're like I still have so much more to write about and then they realize they yeah put in a book oops I accidentally a book <laughs> <laughs> I've read the book and it, it's neat. It's just kind of an exploration of, you know, how can we do, you know, object-oriented design inside of Rails uh, that kind of 
kind of makes sense. And it just, it's kind of neat because it just kind of explores around and plays with different ideas. And, and, and it, it, as usual with Avdi's writing, it has some neat tricks in it. Like um, my favorite thing I learned from it uh, is um, whenever he's manipulating time, he always passes in the clock object. Uh, so basically, you know, it, it could just be, you know, the time class or something. But then by doing that, he's later able to, you know, change the clock object for his purposes, you know, be it testing or forcing some particular scenario or something like that. It's pretty cool. So, Avdi, where there's, did you learn to manipulate there's... time? That would be a handy <laughs> trick to know. Gallifrey. Right answer. <laughs> so, I, I used a different technique on that. This was, uh, this was, there was an internal library at Pivotal that predated Time Cop that we, uh, we called it Clock. And instead of using Time, the Time class, we used the Clock class. And it was just an easily hackable Time Global. So I prefer actually passing it around as an argument like Avdi recommends, but uh, hacking the, the global um, works okay too if you're not doing multi-threaded stuff. Yeah, I've used Time Cop and stuff in the past, but um, actually when I read the book, I, I thought Avdi's approach was more clever and I, I can't remember the exact example now, but at one point he needs the time to be a certain thing. So he just makes an object that returns the right thing and passes that in, you know, and it was really cool. Right. One of the examples I, I give is that, you know, it, it makes the testing easier. But then later on, if you decide, oh, I, I need to do something like post dated blog posts or something like that, it's very easy to come up with specialized clocks, which, you know, which do something a little bit different from the regular clock. So uh, there are some virtues to it. Um, so the other thing I thought was kind of cool about the book is how non radical you are. Like, <laughs> you know, you just kind of say, OK, let's start with a Rails application. Yeah, but I'll just make like some normal Ruby objects and then I'll work my way up and, oh, okay, maybe now it's time to inherit from active record and stuff, you know. Whereas opposed, you know, most people, you know, kind of have almost crazy ideas about the, you know, the way to structure an app. Oh, I'm, I'm going to move all this into lib or, or you know, and, and totally wall that off, uh, you know, in its own little garden or whatever. And you you took a, I thought, real pragmatic yeah. Well, and I think that's a good. Oh, go ahead. It, well, you know, respond to that. Then I have a question. Okay. Oh, well, I was just going to say I think that's a good segue into this into this episode in general because um, I would shy away from saying Rails encourages bad practices. We must bring object oriented programming back to Rails because that's ridiculous. I mean, you know, I, I've been sort of hearing some things like maybe not that extreme, but I've sort of been hearing some stuff like that lately. And and you know, Rails sort of made concrete a bunch of pretty solid patterns that came out of the classic. Uh, you know, object-oriented programming for enterprise applications literature. And so, I mean, there are definitely some oddities in there, but uh, but there's also um, there's also a lot of good stuff in there, and there's a lot of good uh, good practices, and especially with, with Rails 3, now that things are getting a lot more modular and pluggable, um, it's, it's a really good foundation. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to point out, too, that one thing that I have found in programming Rails over the last five or six years is that um, in a lot of cases, there are things that I, I look at the controller or look at the <coughs> model and go, I'm not really sure what the right API is to do this and I go hunt for it and I don't find it. Well, it is. It's as a Ruby class. And so when it comes right. right down to it, you know, if you treat it like a Ruby class, then you can get whatever you need from it. And mm -hmm. uh, there, there's a lot of power there that I think a lot of people are like, well, there's not a, a built-in Rails API for it, so obviously you can't do it. And that's just not the case. <laughs> okay, okay. so let me let me follow up with uh, with the last point on Avdi's book before we uh, spend too much time on it. 
but that I, I, I wanted to ask Avdi what your um, what your intention was like. What's your intended audience in terms of experience level? And let me let me unpack that a little bit and say that there's I think there's say three types of of developers who are working with Rails ap applications, you know, beginners, intermediate, and advanced. And I think a, a lot of what you were talking about seemed, I wasn't really sure where in the maturity level you were aiming for. I, I found mm -hmm. that a lot of what, a lot of what you were doing was either, it seemed uh, potentially really tedious and maybe uh, oriented at someone who was um, maybe less experienced in building those kind of patterns. Um, so just, I, just like, walk it through everything well or, that's or or, or yeah. on the other hand you could look at it and say well this is a, pr a pretty advanced technique because you know this is there's a lot of discipline and a methodical process here and you know let, let's you know you have to be advanced enough to be able to operate at that level so i'm not really sure what was going on <laughs> At risk of limiting my, you know, my pool of readers, I, I, I kind of felt like I was aiming it more towards um, intermediate to advanced um, developers, mainly people that that have one or you know have a couple of Rails apps under their belts. Um, because I'm definitely, I mean, there's total familiarity with the f framework already assumed. I'm not, you know, stepping anybody through how how Rails works. Um, now, as far as like the the tedious bits, that's a good point. Um, what I will say is that you know, it, it, you don't have to follow along. Long, uh, step by step. I guess. I guess one thing I'm trying to do is sort of step through the, these like tedious disciplines for you, and and just sort of demonstrate, you know, some of the maybe some of the positive things that can come out of going through those disciplines if you if you every now and then decide to do them methodically. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I like what um, Chuck was saying a little bit, uh, kind of moving away from the book a little, I guess, and talking about how you know Rails is just uh, Ruby under the hood, or or maybe a layer on top of Ruby is a better way to think about it. And I think that insight is like one of the key insights to getting better at programming Rails. Like I've worked with multiple people before where I, you know, I'm talking them through something and then I say, well, let's just make a class for that. And I'll just, you know, create some file and app models or whatever and build some, you know, plain old Ruby object and, and throw it in there. And you can tell this is a light bulb moment for them, you know, like, oh, I can create a class that Rails didn't create for me, you know, and it can be part of the system and work normally, you know, and I feel like, like I often uh, write uh, controller methods or helpers that take blocks, you know, and then I call them all over the place, you know, customizing the inner bit using the block code or, or whatever, and, and people don't think to do that, you know, and I think it's just that because Rails is kind of structured and stuff, people feel like a, a bit of a resistance to veering off the path, and once you tell them that's okay, it kind of opens up a whole new world for them, you know. Mm -hmm. James, you're such a rogue. <laughs> right. Yeah. Quit breaking the rules. <laughs> you know me. I don't know about you guys, but I almost never use uh, generators. Uh, I think the only thing I really use them for is, is creating migrations. Um, uh -huh. okay. I do I do actually uh, use the generator just because I, I was on a Rails app one time where I spent like a day debugging something. And it was because somebody had made their own uh, model object and put a typo in the, the class definition, the like the first line of the file. And the quickest way to get Rails to go horribly, horribly wrong is make something go wrong when loading. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. It, it, it always surfaces as like some bizarre error 90 million miles away, you know. Especially in development mode. Right, yeah, in development mode. 
Right. That's funny. I, I tend to use the generators. I, I, it would be less than half the time, but I do find them kind of handy if I just want to create a really quick uh, boilerplate, restful, you know, interface that I can just, you know, play with and, and not really have to worry about. But it, the funny thing is, is about half the time I wind up using the generator just to get the structure in place and then heavily modify what's there. So You know, right. you know uh, spoiler alert, but I've heard there's this cool book called Crafting Rails Application that shows you how to modify the generators to make them do whatever you want them to do, which is mm-hmm. kind of cool. I yeah, should read that book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should. The, the, um, the last week or so, there was a, a conversation on the Rails core list about removing uh, scaffolding from Rails proper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the conversation there was pretty interesting. A lot of people were talking about how useful scaffolding was for, oh, we'll just customize it and then it'll create things the way I usually do them. So. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I never use scaffolding. And then after I read um, uh, Crafting Rails Applications recently, when it showed how you could make the scaffolding generator, you like you could just replace the template or stuff like that, I started getting kind of wild ideas of like, okay, there's a couple of things I do pretty often I would love to have it do, you know. So, yeah, I, I think I may try that in the future. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yep. Uh, okay, so I, I think the place that we've all been talking about throwing down is about the mixture of functional and object-oriented programming styles within Rails and Ruby itself, even. It's a good point. You <coughs> want to kind of kind of want to set the stage there because I think I, I kind of have an idea of what you're talking about, but in some in some sense, I'm not sure if I completely follow where you're going. Yeah, I, I'd love to. I, I've actually been um, whining about this for a while and I need to I need to either write up a blog post or do a talk at a conference or something to fully expound my thinking on this but maybe I can just do a, a summary here and that's that uh, R- Ruby has an interesting lineage uh, I, I usually say it's the love child of small talk and lisp raised by Pearl the eccentric nanny uh, and <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have to give credit to Adam Keyes for the eccentric nanny bit. <laughs> I'm still I'm still trying to work that through in my head. It scares me. Yeah, we should we should uh, have somebody Photoshop picture of Mary Poppins and put Matt's face in there. <laughs> oh, no, oh, nice. Okay. I mean Larry Wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah good point, yeah. Larry Wall. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but at any rate, the, there's a lot of functional stuff that is available in Ruby, and there are you know, several patterns that you see either in Rails itself or just commonly used in Ruby that crop up in Rails applications. And my my thesis after having done this for quite a while is that have, having two different design centers in your application makes for crazy code. Now, object-oriented programming, we have this big book of patterns that are all about you know, ab- object structure and generating objects, things like that. There's also functional patterns that are very different from object-oriented pr- patterns. And when you start organizing your code using two different paradigms, you get crazy. So that that's my my thesis. And I've, it, I've been looking at all the application code I've been playing with for the last year or two through this lens and I see a lot of crazy. Mostly I see it in JavaScript. JavaScript I think has uh, an even more precarious balance between functional and object programming. Yeah, yeah definitely I definitely true. agree with that because the functional or the object oriented system in JavaScript is kind of unusual. You can get as crazy as JavaScript in Ruby if you want to. It's just why would you? <laughs> there, right. because, because Ruby has better mechanisms for a lot of that stuff. Right. But I've, see, I've seen people do things like programmatically creating 
having modules within a particular scope so that they can act as something like a closure, but in a in a it's it's more like how you create things in in JavaScript where you have nested lexical scopes. Mm-hmm. And somebody was programmatically created a module so that they could be within a different scope so that they could um, you know bind to some variables and then pass that along to an object. And that just made my teeth hurt looking at it. <laughs> so I have made the contention, and I will defend it, that JavaScript is from a language design pr- perspective is fundamentally closer to a Lisp um, uh, or other functional programming language mm-hmm. than Ruby is. Uh, yeah, it I, really it, it really does have first class uh, functions, which which Ruby um, you know much as as you can as you can sort of emulate them sort of uh, does not. And, and JavaScript is actually very close to the original Smalltalk implementation, Smalltalk seventy two. In Smalltalk seventy two, classes were functions, just mm-hmm. like they are in JavaScript. And they they realized after a couple years playing around with that, that that was a pretty crappy way to, to organize your object-oriented code. And then they came out with Smalltalk 76, which I think is probably the first real object-oriented language. So, so I, I, I kind of agree with what you were saying about um, don't have two design centers. I, I definitely agree with that point. Like, you know, don't come at your application from a, oh, we'll do this part in a beautiful OO design, and then we'll do this other part that it's going to talk to in a very functional way. I, I definitely agree with that. But I, my opinion is, uh, and I've actually written about this a little bit recently on uh, Ruby's in the Rough, that uh, Ruby actually is kind of a melting pot language and takes ideas from functional programming and scripting and stuff like that, and that and that good Ruby is actually a mix of those concepts to some degree. So, like, I agree with you that I, I don't want, you know, two fundamental design principles, but at the same time, I do want to use the parts Ruby has stolen from functional languages, like, for example, blocks and our closures and stuff. And I believe we can use those and still be doing good object-oriented design. Because I, Ruby, I agree. Yeah, because Ruby's designed for that, right? That it's it's mm-hmm. that that's part of what. So I guess what I'm saying is, yes, I want I want good object-oriented design, but I want the Ruby kind, not the Java kind. Right. So so where I draw the line there is I will I will structure my code in the in the large. I'm very serious about having that be object-oriented and within. Mass- methods of classes, I tend to use a functional style. So, I, you know, I have a single exit point. I, there's, you know, I, I will pass things explicitly as parameters. Uh, you know, I try, I try and have very little mutable state within a method. Uh, and that seems to work great, um, you know, as long as I don't go overboard with it. Uh, but I, I don't do things that will uh, break encapsulation or, you know, confuse polymorphism, mess with inheritance. Yeah, and, I, yeah, and, I and that's, that's something that's you a, see in, in, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, <laughs> Well, I was gonna say I was I was starting to read uh, growing objects growing object oriented software uh, guided by tests, and I'm sure I got that title wrong um, recently. And and that's one thing they comment on is that that uh, you know they find that code tends to to be more functional um, in inside of implementation of methods, um, you know, and then and then more ob- in order to support the object oriented nature of the interactions between objects. Mm-hmm. Right. right. So I just don't go all the way to like having immutable objects and then like returning a new string every time I need to make some change or something like that. Heck no. Yeah. 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 
That, yeah, okay. We all had pain, pain. <laughs> I know. That's great. Okay, so Ruby, uh, the, there was something uh, announced uh, uh, re- just a couple days ago about the lazy innumerables. And and I had a pretty visceral negative reaction to seeing that. And I, I, I don't know if, uh, I, I guess David did, but he's not here to, to uh, chime in on that too. James, you had a different position. So I, I want to I wanna hear how, how you think it's awesome. So yeah, I, uh, can, can I, I saw this. Can I stop you guys for a minute? Because sure. uh, I, I'm a lazy programmable and I haven't actually seen this yet <laughs> yeah yeah I'm gonna, I'm gonna explain it okay so i i saw i think it was yesterday uh that a patch had been applied to ruby 2 which you know will become the next version of ruby um that's a lazy enumerable so the idea behind it is you can take some enumerable object like an array and you can call the dot lazy method and uh then after that you can chain on some iterators so in the example with the post they do a map and then a select. And there's basically two things that happen there. One, because uh, you've called lazy, the evaluation is not done immediately. So you just get like some, you know, lazy enumerable object, but it's not done. Yeah, you can think of that as much the same way the current version of Active Record does queries, right? When you call where or something like that, you just get back a lazy, you know, relation object that that represents that query. And then when you're done chaining methods on it, and you finally, in a view or something, call each on it to run through the results, that's when the query actually happens. Mm-hmm. And we know from uh, functional programming languages that. Uh, lazy evaluation can often be beneficial because sometimes there's uh, times when you set something up but it doesn't actually get used because that particular path of code isn't gone down or whatever. So, so the advantage of doing it lazily is that sometimes you don't have to do it at all, right? If that never, if that value never gets used. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing, uh, the other thing that happens in this new patch, because it's lazy, when we do finally evaluate it, we know all the things that have been strung together and everything that's going to happen. So again, to use the Rails analogy, you know, you, you can tack multiple wares on there and Rails ends up constructing those into one where clause, right, which is some ands and some parentheses in that case. But the idea here is, if we did a map followed by a select, if we do that the old-fashioned way, then we have to run through the list and convert it to another list, and then we have to run through that list and pick out all the items, and there's, you know, intermediate arrays along the way and stuff like that. But because we know the whole transform at the time we're actually doing it, we can just make one pass over the collection and transform it and and see if that value should stay in the result list and, and blah, blah, blah. So it's kind of a, an optimization thing as well. Uh, right. So does that ex- explain it? Uh, that does. I, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I want to I rebut that now. So uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah, you just had your TV address and now I get my radio response. The, <laughs> <laughs> the, um, so lazy lists are, are a typical functional programming thing. And uh, you know, the first functional language I learned, which was, um, I, I won't even mention it because no one will remember it, but it was an old functional language that was a precursor to Haskell. And it had lazy infinite lists. And this was a very pure functional language. It wasn't like common lists where you had uh, dynamic 
dynamic variables that you could that you could mutate. This was a, a stateless language that everything was immutable. And lazy, it, their lazy lists weren't just lazy, they were infinite. Okay, I'll just say it. The language was St. Andrew's static language, Sassel, because people will want to know, but, or maybe they won't. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, that, so they had these lazy infinite lists. Do you guys and, feel like Josh buys programming languages off the back of a truck or something? <laughs> <laughs> I can't say anything. I learned to program in Rex, so. <laughs> oh man! And, we, and I had and I had to walk uh, ten miles to class in the snow, uphill both ways. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So lazy list. They weren't just lazy. They were infinite, meaning that uh, you could you know, ask for element 10,000 and it wouldn't figure it out until you asked for it. But the, it, so this was a hack that allowed them to deal with uh, trying to trying to iterate when they had no iteration and they had no mutable state. And I, it's a it's a brilliant hack for that. And you know, mathematically, it's very elegant and it works well within a pure functional paradigm. The, the problem with doing this kind of stuff in an object world is if you look at the example of doing a map and then a select that that's kind of breaking the encapsulation boundary of the array and you know it's okay because innumerable is part of array whatever but that if you if you think about what you're expressing there saying okay I have a collection of numbers and then I want to multiply them by 10 and then I want to pick the ones that are over 30 you could just do that in one block <laughs> you could say you could say you know here's my array select you know where x times 10 is greater than 30 it, the <laughs> so it's you, know, you can you can do it all in one block. You don't need to have the lazy uh, lists for that example. The but the other thing is if you want to instead of just expressing that in code there, you could actually move that that um, that combination of of the blocks into a method somewhere that 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 you know, uh, turns that into a single concept on a class somewhere rather than you know having you know having this very functional style of you know a block feeding into a block feeding into a block and it, that stuff is cool and I I think it's it's great doing that a lot of times you know i'm a big fan of enumerable but um but when you're when the language is oriented towards optimizing these things with a technique that is gonna okay if i want to do good functional or good uh, performant code in ruby i'm going to be using these lazy lists so i have to uh, organize my thinking around my code in this very functional way and that that was my big response to it is, is so that, now do i get a rebuttal on the rebuttal please, yeah no, please i do. want it i want it all right go for it go for it <laughs> um well i was just going to say that that um i think it, it depends a little bit on how how you look at at what those are doing um because i so like with the active record example um with the where clauses um i look at that as a builder pattern. So so what you're doing is is you've got like a tiny little DSL for building a query which involves repeatedly calling where adding adding bits to that query. Um, and and what you're doing is you're actually in the background what you're doing is you're building a query object. Um, so I think if you structure it and you if you think about it as as a builder pattern where you're adding where you're adding like you know constraints bit by bit uh, to a query object uh, then it's not an unOO uh, pattern but but yes if you, if you think of it as you know you know nominal you know notionally this looks like send map to the collection then send select to the resulting collection etc but what's really going on is is it's being optimized in the background you know due to magic knowledge um, you know that's that's rather messy from an object-oriented pr perspective so what I wanted to say on it is um, it was kind of interesting for me because um, 
just like one day earlier, David Brady had sent me an email uh, about this chunk of code he was playing with. And it, it's long and involved because it's David Brady. But uh, I, I, I'm not going to go into the whole thing. But at one point, he has this scenario where he has the one loop of iteration and uh, and then he's breaking it down into the map. And uh, in this case, it was actually in each, I think. But it, the two iterators like what we see in this uh, feature. And he argued at the time uh, that he liked that better because it separated the two things. You know, that the mapping operation was the mapping operation and then the, uh, you know, what he was doing in the each, that was its own thing. And at the time, I took exactly the view Josh expressed where it was like, yeah, but then you're giving up a lot of performance. You know, if you have something like a list of 100,000 items and you got to go through it twice, that sucks. Um, so it, it was interesting then that I saw this patch almost a day later and I was like, well, not anymore. You know, if you uh, if you do this, we can do it all in one pass. Uh, which is kind of an interesting argument for that, I think, for what David was claiming that, you know, by doing these separate, uh, you can, you know, have the map part focus on the map part and the select or each or whatever, do just that one thing. And the cool part about that is what turns out to be cool about the current active record syntax is that you can build up these things, right? So you can start with some just generic where clause and then you have that object, but it hasn't been evaluated yet so then you can you know uh, branch on some conditional you know if it's this way let's add in this part and if it's this way let's add in this part and then at the end you get down to the end and you're like okay I'm all ready let's run the query and now that'll give us the same way uh, this is going to give us a similar ability with enumerable methods right so we can say okay I know there's going to be this transform of the data and then but maybe we allow the user to inject some you know okay but I also want to select these entries and the, and you can kind of build up this enumeration and then trigger the whole thing and not pay a performance penalty for the fact that you had to do that, uh, which is, you know, much harder to do if you're if you're really going to try to do it in one pass. You'd have to write the code very carefully to handle that. So I thought that was kind of a neat option that it adds. Well, OK, that, that sounds fine. That's <laughs> all well and good. <laughs> but but it, it, the, the thing that um, you remember when uh, when Kent was on, he was talking about you know, one of the primary motivations in the patterns in small talk best practice patterns was you break things apart into smaller and smaller pieces, which lets you keep your code dry. You, know, you, 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 you only say one thing. You, know, you say something once and only once. So you just decompose it into smaller and smaller pieces and then you can compose them up later in multiple ways. It's great. You know, we all do that in our pro in our programming. The the thing is where you break things apart matters and and you know, what are the boundaries there. So I, I think that when I when I see uh, systems that you know, have things broken apart along object boundaries and then other things broken apart on algorithmic boundaries, I I, I find the code confusing to navigate and and there's a lot of impedance mismatch when you're trying to you know, weave together a lot of these little pieces and they're built according to different orientations. So I have something I want to bounce off you, Josh. Yeah. Um. I would. 
I would say that there's a there's a very OO pattern or idiom uh, which is similar to this, uh, which is streams. Um, so mm-hmm. if you have if you have a stream of of objects which sends objects into a filter and it then selects some of them and then it sends them on to another filter and it selects some of them, um, I would say that 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 sort of slight tweak on on what we're talking about is a very um, OO way of doing things. And also, I guess you could also turn it around and have it be the version where you know the the last filter pulls um, pulls something from the 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 filter next up the chain that might be um, you know close to the same level of of OO thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd agree. You know, small small talk had head streams and infinite streams, and you know, it's just yeah. Fine. So I I think that's you know that's just it's like a, a very slight ro- you know uh, uh, rotation of the idea. It's the wrong word, but anyway, you know, very slight tweak on the idea. Um, but if yeah, if you think about it in terms of streams sending sending objects to each other or, or sending through filters, and I'd actually I'd like to see more of that uh, in Ruby. One of the interesting things in Smalltalk is that it uses streams so much. Like like there's less string processing and more stream processing. Uh, so you know you, you you print things to streams and then you can have filter streams and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and you know that, that works out great. So, so I I want to bring this back to Rails because that's nominally what this conversation is about. <laughs> hey, can I, I I can give an example in Rails of oh, a kind of stream-like behavior. Uh, the find each method kind of works like that, right? Um, if you, you know, you don't yeah. know if you can load the entire table set into memory, that might be dangerous. So instead you call find each. And what it does is batches the finds, right? So get the first thousand objects or whatever, you can tweak it. Um, and then yield those in one at a time and then get the next thousand, yield those in one at a time. And so even though you may be processing a data set that's actually larger than your memory, you can work through them just like a normal each, right? Which is one of the advantages of kind of a lazy stream evaluation kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Everybody I know who was doing Rails five years ago built that for themselves and then they came out with it in, in a release of Rails and everyone said, oh, great. I don't have to build this again myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So so I think that's that's great. But there there's a lot of little things, I think, in Rails that are, you know, like uh, like filters in controllers. It, you know, if you look at that, uh, you know, like you know, around filters, et cetera, that, that, that ends up feeling a little functional to me. But, you know, then again, it, it ends up not being a big problem most of the time. Well, it feels a lot like aspect-oriented programming, which, which is, uh, of course, is is basically structured come from uh, from intercal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, with with the the intercal joke language, uh, come from is a construct uh, where you you put a come from somewhere in the code and you say where where the uh, the code where the processing should come from at that point, and then at some totally other place in the code that has no annotations or anything, uh, it notes that that that's a come from point, and your processing jumps out of the code there and shows up at uh, at the at the come from it's, um, it's awesome. so it's kind of a, it's a joke on on go to but uh, it's basically this is exactly what aspect oriented programming is yeah. and 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 it, it's it kind of speaks to the confusion that can crop up anytime uh, you have like you know something where you you can you know insert you know mm-hmm. say oh and I actually want you know around these around these methods I actually want this to happen and you know you can be looking at the method and, and trying to figure out well how come the the processing never made it here and, and it's it's actually because it got lost in a filter somewhere yeah yeah. See, I, I've run into that with, with yeah. CanCan in particular, yeah. where I, I tell it to load the resource and authorize it, and then for some reason it's something that doesn't need a loaded resource, and so it craps out before it's anywhere. But, but by the way, my favorite definition of continuations is that they are non-local computed come-froms. 
<laughs> yes. So I, I, I agree kind of with what you guys are saying, but also at the same time, like this kind of goes back to what I'm saying about, I want, I want us to define the Ruby style of programming. And mm-hmm. like, we do have blocks and I thought it was eloquent Ruby that did the best job of explaining, you know, a block is just an around filter, right? It's some yeah. chunk of, of code that you get and then you can choose to do something before it or after it or store it away for later, whatever. Um, but it, that, that, that is part of Ruby and, and like, and I've used that to great advantage. Like sometimes I've taken controllers that were crazy complicated and made some simple method that took a block and that let me just rewrite the whole controller in trivial syntax. You know? Oh yeah. That's yeah. Great. And, and, but I it's explicit. I, right. Right. It is explicit. Yeah. And, and yeah, often, I, I often find that, that to be a better choice than, than the implicit, you know, jumping around of the filters. Gotcha. Okay, so in terms of, of recommendations and or, or our favorite practices for, for adding or for doing OOP, quote, the right way in Rails, <laughs> <laughs> what, what do we got here? <laughs> yeah, 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 that's not biased at all. <laughs> I got a real simple one for, uh, for controllers since we're talking about controllers. Um, and, and this goes to one of the, the most common common complaints about encapsulation breakage in, in Rails, which is that, you know, controllers try to treat views as sort of kind of controller methods. So they copy the instance variables over from the controller into the into the uh, view context, uh, which is a little hinky from from uh, an encapsulation perspective. Uh, and 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 it's not just a purity thing. I mean, that can lead to a whole lot of a whole lot of issues where you have a, you know, you accidentally don't set an instance variable in a particular context where that view is used, but there's absolutely no indication that that you needed to and stuff like that. Um, and as far as I can tell, and I'd be happy if somebody would you know prove me wrong, but but or not too happy. But as far as I can tell, there is no reason to pass data to um, to views using instance variables in Rails three um, because we now have um, the the helper method macro where you can say this method on my controller should also be exposed as a helper method to my views. Uh, so you can you know if if your view needs a post object, you can have a, a post accessor method on your controller, which is then exposed as a helper method. And the view can just reference that and that um, and, and that just it works great. And it doesn't have to reference an instance variable. And the great thing about it is that then when you start refactoring your views into partials, um, that just naturally without any change to, to the, the partial code that naturally goes from being a a helper method reference on the controller to possibly being a local variable reference uh, in that part. That, that's great, and, and and I there's but I think you're you're making an assumption there that I want to make explicit, and that's that as a good practice, you should not directly access instance variables in view partials. That's yeah, well, that's, that's very yeah, true. that's what I'm saying is that is that this is a way to 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 forever get away from that. Well, well, even even if you're using instance variables in in the top level view, when you go into partials, you should pass those in those values in explicitly as locals right, right. to the partial. And, that, and, and what that's happens what is you start out with a big partial and then you start breaking or you start out with a big you know a big main view and you start breaking it up into partials and they retain their instance variables as a you know as a side effect of that of that um, breaking up process and there's so there's another technique that I've used and that's it's it's a little different from from how you were doing uh, your stuff in objects on rails and 
I was uh, you know, working on a, a you know an existing code base, and they had a very complicated view system, and they were they were they had tons and tons of partials, and they were passing around literally like something like you know eight to twelve variables, you know from from one partial to another in cases. Mm-hmm. And I just went through and I created a an object that I I called it a presenter that yes. took all of that state, put it into one object, so I could only so I could pass this one object around from partial to partial, and then all of the code that and these views were had a lot of code inserted in them using ERB. I pulled all of that code out except for simple simple conditionals and turned it into methods in the presenter. So state and behavior, put it together into a class, and I could then pass those things down through this you know big hairy network of partials that you know without changing the organization of the partials, all I had to do was clean up the code within them. And and that right. and that's really- the that's the parameter object refactoring, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But but I also put a lot of behavior into it. So so mm. maybe maybe it was somewhere between a parameter and a method object. See, I, yeah, I, I feel and, like and that's definitely. That, go ahead. I was just going to say that's that is exactly the the purpose that the original, um, you know, the J Fields introduced presenter uh, for. Yeah. See, I feel like that's almost the um, uh, when we were reading small talk best practice patterns, and we talked about how you know once sometimes once you extract that method object or something like that, then you realize, oh, cool, now I have a place to hang all this functionality, you know, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. where it ends up going. I do use that trick a lot of building an object too. And sometimes I'll like, um, uh, it, you know, it doesn't always have to be with views and stuff, even just with um, models. Sometimes I, I want to work with that model sort of, but actually in a, a totally different context. So I just put a method on that model that returns a normal Ruby object that that is the other context I want to work with it in, you know, passing itself into it as it goes. And then, and then I I can, you know, build out that Ruby object normally and work with it in a way that makes sense. Yeah, I really like that that approach. Just the whole idea of having something that um, behaves the way that I need it to in the view, where I wouldn't necessarily want to interact with it in the same way in the controller or other, you know, from other models. So yeah. Ooh, awkward silence. Yeah, it'll get edited out, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, okay, so so aside from that, do we have have particular approaches that uh, that people like? Oh, I, here here's one. Um, I've been I've been playing around with, uh, or well, I've been using uh, fixture scenarios more and more. I, I think I've mentioned it before. I think it was my pick one time. Uh, but it's a, it's a way of uh, generating a bunch of data to go into fixtures. And you can use Factory Girl or whatever to generate the data in memory. And then it dumps it into a bunch of YAML files for you that you can load as fixtures with all of the performance advantages of doing that. The, cool. So, so that's been great. Yeah. Hmm? You, oh, I, th- I thought you were asking. I me. said neat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> cool. Right. So. Yeah. So, so that, that's been pretty cool. The, the thing that really made that click for me was taking all of the, because I've worked, I've, I did like, like two projects with it where I just had this big procedural task that went and put all that stuff together and dumped everything into into uh, you know, into the fixtures but it was like this you know literally this you know 200 line method that went and did all that and I said okay I'm not doing this anymore and I created a class that uh, I started composing up the pieces that I wanted so I had a like you know create guest user method in this class and I could call that from you know anywhere I wanted and I could so I could decompose this the okay I have a you know I have a, a blog post here and that has a bunch of comments and I could you know just structure it using the a vocabulary that I built up within that class so I I found that to be a, a pretty handy technique and 
and uh, my you know for the I'm I'm using this in my application now, and I don't get overwhelmed by the confusion of all the weirdness that happens when you're trying to create all of your seed data in your database. So it, that that's been a pretty cool technique for me. I, that's probably worth a blog post at some point. Absolutely. I mean I, that reminds me of of uh, something similar that I try to do, which is just that that you know I feel like if I have an object um, which takes more than you know a couple of lines to instantiate in a reasonable way, then I need to find some way to put some you know some sugar over that because basically like I, I feel like there's if if I can't easily uh, manipulate an object uh, from the console you know from from IRB um, you know if I can't just play with it um, or if I feel threatened by you know if I feel intimidated from playing with it like oh I I'd have to do so much setup before I could even uh, fiddle with that object manually um, I feel like that's that hobbles my development efforts. Um. There's, yeah, there's a, a huge advantage to manip manipulability. That's kind of another way in that I think Rails sometimes, you know, not even purposefully, but kind of accidentally pushes us to bad habits in that uh, the Rails structure, you know, it's really common to have a method that just takes some insane hash of arguments, right? <laughs> that, right. that you definitely don't want to be typing in an IRB, you know, kind of thing. And, but yeah. I, gotta I love those. <laughs> I absolutely agree with that, that, you know, if, if you are struggling to instantiate an object, then your interface is wrong, right? Yeah. All right. Well, we probably ought to get to the picks. Um, is there anything that you guys are just dying to share before we do that? One one other topic that we, we talked a little bit pre-show about uh, addressing, I don't think we can really talk about it uh, in any great depth, but um, it's just there's one kind of argument that's made about object-oriented programming, uh, about why it's, you know, why it's unrealistic that I hear more often than most other arguments, which is just... Uh, um, the idea that in object-oriented programming, you're supposed to create um, simulations of objects in the real world. You're, you know, you're you're representing real things um, with your objects, and and the argument that's made then is, um, well, that's a lost cause. You know, it, the the real world is a messy place. Um, we can't possibly um, accurately simulate simulate the objects that we find, and that's and that's the cause of many errors or uh, problems in programs. Um, do you guys have anything to, to say to that? Well, it's kind of silly. No, no, I don't want to. I don't want to come off as dismissive, but I, I think that, that there's. But he's a dismissing of, it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you. Oh, nice. <laughs> so I do want to come off as dismissive then. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think that there's so much that you model in software that is at an abstract or conceptual level, and and object-oriented programming is just fine for that. Um, events. You know, we we use events all the time in right or yeah undo yeah if you yeah. follow that argument you can't have an undo tracker yeah. or Com something. command patterns yeah right yeah. <laughs> but, yeah but but the other thing is that stuff in the real world it, you know so okay if you're Bertrand Russell you look at everything through category theory you can you know throw everything into the right bucket but in in real life things are actually pretty complicated and there's a lot of multiple inheritance going on for want of a better term it, so, and you know that was a big problem when we were in small talk and only had single inheritance. Ruby, you get mixins through modules and you can solve that problem in a different way. But that that doesn't that didn't mean that in Smalltalk we couldn't model the real world. You know, we just did it a different way. We didn't use multiple inheritance. Right, right. Well the other thing is is that every time I see an example of modeling something in the real world, it's always a contrived example. And so it's like, you know, so you have this object that's the car and the car has all these other blah 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 blah. Right? It's like, well why would you ever want to break it down that way? <laughs> and um, for me 
really what it comes down to is that you you abstract away the things that you need to abstract away and you highlight all of the things that are important and that's good object oriented program now you have to be careful because sometimes you do need to break things down and you don't but that's part of the process and that's part of learning how to do good object oriented uh, design and so really um, when it comes right down to it if you are modeling something in the real world you're really only modeling the parts that are important the parts that you care about and it's not like your code is set in stone anyway so you can always go back and, and change the way that that uh, your your object models the world if it doesn't quite fit what you need to know about it and so you know when, when, when you're talking about modeling the entire world you know every every small component of every every little thing you know ultimately a lot of that probably doesn't matter and so if if it really does fit with what you're trying to do then then terrific you know um, you know stick with it work through it and make it work and you know just like um, just like everything else it's not suited for every every problem but if you are dealing with things on that level then then it's definitely suited for for those problems and if it's not then yeah go find something else that allows you to model your problem in in a better way yeah, yeah. myth busted <laughs> so. yeah I feel like I, I feel like um you know I don't want to get to like a whole DCI discussion or anything like that but I, I do feel like the best that we can hope to do even when we are dealing with with objects that have some some sort of nominal represent you know existence in the real world is to represent roles in a given interaction um and that's you know the best that we can that we really need to try to do is is to represent the role that something plays in an inter interaction yeah I, I don't know that. if you guys agree with me or not but yeah actually I do I mean like there could be scenarios where you know it makes no sense to model a car and a boat as the same thing right because the way they're going to be used it it doesn't make any sense at all but then there can be other scenarios where absolutely a car and a boat should just be a vehicle you know or because of the way they're going to be used it's all the same you know? right, product you products in a registry or something right. right right all you care about is point a point b and how fast you get there it doesn't matter if it's an airplane a car or a boat yeah right so anyway um let's let's get into the picks um josh why don't you go first okay uh, it's been a while since i've done uh i think a fun reading pick so my so my first pick is for the young wizards series by diane duane and diane duane uh might be familiar to people from she's written a bunch of star trek stuff especially a lot of romulan stuff but she wrote uh spock's world and um what was it? Uh, uh, anyway, she she wrote a, a couple pretty. Oh, the wounded sky. I thought that was pretty awesome as well. But but uh, you know, while I'm mentioning those, my real pick is for her Young Wizards series of books. And the first one is called So You Want to Be a Wizard, and it came out in 1983, so it predated Harry Potter by quite a while. Uh, and she now has nine books in the series, and they're basically about you know kids who live in our world, not who live in this like separate wizarding world. They you know, they live in our world, but they're wizards and they're their job is to you know protect the world from death and you know stave off the stave off the heat death of the universe as long as possible and and the, the thing that I love about these books is that wizardry is basically writing software oh interesting yeah so and and you know it's a linguistic operation for them it, but the it, they're just they're really fun books they're they're a little less uh, silly and whimsical than the other series of wizardry books <laughs> so I can I could actually imagine knowing someone who was a wizard from this from these books as opposed to like the Harry Potter books where I would just laugh at them <laughs> it's just you know, they're, they're, they're entertaining but you know they're they're not real people <laughs> and and, the, and and you know and instead of having you know athletic matches that they you know that are the big you know thing going on in the books it's like 
okay, we have to save the world from total destruction. So I, I, I think they're they're good young adult books, or, or I, you know, probably you know, ten or eleven is is old enough to read these books. I'm not quite sure since I'm not a parent. But um, anyway, so so they're great. If you have kids, they're good for the kids. They're actually really, really great for uh, grown-ups as well. And then there's an associated series about cat wizards. It's set in the same universe. It's set in the same universe, but the themes are a little more for grown-ups. And and you know, Diane Duane just does an absolutely hysterical job of, of uh, having cats and dogs as characters in her books. So. So wait, when they added in the cats, then it got more adult. Oh That's yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I, I didn't expect that. Yeah, it, it's the other way around from what you'd think. But anyway, it, th- these are really good books. You, it, she, uh, Diane Duane released them recently all in ebook format, so you can read them on your iPad or your Kindle or whatever. And it's just at youngwizards.com. Okay. It's, it's the site for that. And, and then my other pick is uh, for something that's still vaporware, but it's so awesome that I have to talk about it. And and that's uh, Serialize.com. And this is spelled C-E-R-E-A-L-I-Z-E, like breakfast cereal. And this this was a, a, a creation of one of the startup bus trips going to South by Southwest last week. And, and a friend of mine was on the bus and they decided, okay, let's do custom cereal subscriptions. Oh, so, so you go to Serialize.com and they, they have a site there already and it's it's pretty slick but you basically pick you know, what your grain is in your cereal what your dried fruit toppings are what your nuts are what your yogurt bits are or whatever and then you know they the, the idea is that you know that'll just show up at your house that's <laughs> you know, awesome yeah <laughs> so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this uh, I, I figure I'll, I'll direct people towards it so the, the more buzz and support they get now the more likely it is to actually happen nice <laughs> yeah so but go to the website and check out the uh, the joke brand cereal brands uh, it's it's worth looking at just for that Do I they have like I the supreme pizza version where you put everything in it <laughs> uh, I expect they will <laughs> so okay that's it for me all right cool uh, Avdi uh, so I think just one pick to I don't think this has been picked before. Uh, my pick is the Less Wrong blog. It's a blog about uh, <laughs> uh, at least one. Yeah, it's it's a blog about cognitive biases um, and um, you know the the ways that we un- unwittingly um, screw up in our thinking and uh, and it's sort of it seems to be sort of dedicated to equipping people with the mental tools to um, you know to get around their cognitive biases. Um, so you know. I, I, I don't always have time to read their their longish posts, but uh, every time I do, I learn something interesting. Like the something like recently, I learned that um, you know that that the science the scientific system itself uh, actually has some some interesting biases in place. Um, for instance, uh, you know everybody knows that if you want to confirm a fact, you should look to see if it's been written up in a in a reputable scientific journal. Uh, what I didn't know realize is that a lot of the journals, a lot of the the biggest journals have um, have a bias where they will publish novel new findings, uh, but they will not publish other studies that come after that say we tried to reproduce that that novel finding and and were unable to do so. Um, and, you know, because novel findings are more interesting from a publishing point of view. Uh, so, you know, you can have one novel finding and then a dozen studies that say, no, we couldn't reproduce that. And and the the novel one is the one that gets published. So I'm probably oversimplifying that. But uh, but it was a it was very interesting, um, a very interesting read. Yeah, that's that's great stuff all around. So Sounds interesting. Sounds like they should start a podcast. Um, James, what are your picks? Okay, so I've tried like 50 million new things this week and I hated them 
small. So by not picking them, I'm helping you. Um, <laughs> like, uh, but I will pick one thing. Um, Josh uh, recently picked the Machete Order article for Star Wars, you know, which was really cool. Um, the, but the thing I got out of reading that that I didn't know about was the Harmies Despecialized Editions of the, of the series. And so if you don't know what these are, this guy has basically gone through and using all, you know, like seven different sources, rebuilt uh, the series and uh, getting very, very close to how it was in the theater, except that it's uh, now for, you know, HD TV kind of thing. Um, so uh, you can actually go and get these and burn them into Blu-rays, right? Uh, which is just absolutely awesome and they look fantastic and if you're a purist uh then you'll really appreciate that they're like um uh you know pretty darn close to the way they were uh in the in the theater all the major uh plot points have been you know fixed you know whether or not han shoots first and you know early spoiler (laughs) early spoilers and stuff like that so uh it's really great and i mean the fact how he's done this is just amazing i mean gone through and clip scenes used video filters to, you know, remove elements, but you get, you know, the, the beautiful, gorgeous updated, you know, the lightsabers look great and stuff like that. So, uh, it's really kind of cool. But the hell part is it's kind of a lot of work to put these together. Uh, I've actually been doing it. Um, so, you know, you gotta go get them off of a, a torrent, uh, first of all. So if, if you don't have much experience with that, um, I use this transmission client, uh, and on the Mac and it seems to work really great. Um, so I've had a lot of luck with that. And you have to uh, go find all the torrent files, which uh, that, that part's not too tough if you uh, get lucky with Google. Um, and then uh, you also need, uh, obviously, if you're going to put them on Blu-ray like I did, um, you need tools for that because Macs don't you know, do that out of the box. Um, so I grabbed a, uh, a Blu-ray burner, um, and I'll put links to all the things I use. You don't necessarily have to use these things. There's obviously other ways to do to do it. Um, but then you need some kind of program that can uh, burn Blu-rays, and I used Toast for that, uh, titan- uh, Toast Titanium 11. And I never used that program before uh, because I've always just used like the built-in disk utility or something when I do CDs and stuff. Uh, but it seems to work great. I mean, it worked just fine. Um, so I was uh, pretty pleased with that. And then, uh, depending on how far you want to go, you can you can really kind of go all out. They they come with uh, you know the like the inserts for the cases and stuff, and you can pick up the cases on Amazon and and uh, uh, the printer supplies to print your own inserts. And then you can get like the um, uh, disc covers, and uh, again, you can get those as like you know Avery labels, and then you can pop those onto the disc. So you, you can kind of go all out and make like your own uh, little series. And it's pretty fun if you don't mind the you know uh, hassle to do it all. Uh, so I've enjoyed that, and all. that's what I'm sharing for what I've been up to. Nice. So that's the version where they took out all the stuff that they added in in the last revision of the Star Wars movies. Is that what you're actually? Since since basically all the revisions, right? Lucas has been obsessed with tweaking the series since right. uh, since then, and and just been slowly changing it. And you know, really sad in a lot of ways. I mean, a lot of the things he changed were super stupid, you know, and have even become internet memes like the Han shot first or whatever. But yeah. 
also he you know he spoils the surprise in Empire Strikes Back you know early and then uh, you know and uh, like just things like they change the Ewok music in Return of the Jedi to something that wouldn't be the tools they have around you know all of a sudden right. it's like this you know techno kind of stuff and yeah so it, it just yeah totally taking it back to like the theatrical what made it great but now it's also gorgeous and looks great on your HD TV you know so it's yeah, kind of cool I want one yeah it's fun stuff you should try it it's it's uh, great my wife's a super big fan so her birthday's coming up and I've been making these for her so. yeah, yeah my birthday's coming up too you know what sounds like a, <laughs> you know what sounds like a whole lot less work I'll just put in an order to James <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right. Um, so I guess it's my turn. Um, so I've been playing with a few things here as well. Um, one that I've really been enjoying uh, that I picked up from JavaScript Jabber. We talked to Paul Irish about the Chrome DevTools, um, which is so, so handy. But I've actually been using Chrome Canary, which is uh, kind of a pre-release. I, I don't know if I want to call it a pre-release version of Chrome, but basically it, it's pretty stable. It updates every day um, and it has a lot more features and functionality than the regular Chrome does. Chrome, I guess, catches up like every week or two or something. Um, I don't remember the exact schedule, but he goes over it on JavaScript Jabber, so if you go listen to that episode. Um, but anyway, the the tools in that are just awesome, like totally just amazing. And so I'm, I'm loving that. And so if you're having to debug JavaScript or if you want to fiddle with CSS on the fly and see how it modifies your page, then those are just some great ways to go to, uh, there are some great tools in Chrome, uh, particularly in Chrome Canary, that will uh, kind of get you a little further down the road. Um, um, one other thing that I have been playing with lately, um, I picked it up because um, I've been listening to the Mac Power Users podcast, which somebody recommended back when I think we were talking about Evernote or something. Yeah, that, that was my uh, my pick then. Yeah, so I've been listening to it from the beginning, and they, they kept talking about Scrivener, and so I went and I picked up Scrivener, and um, I've been reading through the, the tutorial that they have in there because um, I wanted to use it to organize my talk, and I realized I didn't have enough time to go through the tutorial and write my talk, so I'm, I'm kind of uh, fudging there, but uh, just the the first part where it shows you about how all the organization stuff works and things like that, I, I can totally see myself using this in the future to um, organize and write uh, blog posts, organize and write uh, online courses, organize and write uh, conference talks, and uh, really just kind of cohesively you know, gather information and then put ideas together in order to uh, put the stuff together. I'm also hoping to get some ebooks written, though I haven't finalized what any of the topics will be. But uh, you know, all in all, it just seems like a really terrific way to go if you want to pull some sources together get your drafts together um, put notes into it you know organize it however you need to organize it and then get it out so um, those are my picks and uh, with that I think we'll wrap up unless you guys have anything to add all right so um, really quickly in two weeks we're going to be talking to um, Jose Valim about uh, crafting rails applications that's our book club um, it's a good book it is it's it's really good and it's a really quick read too like I sit down for a half hour and I, I made it through like 10 or 15 percent of the book. I mean, it was it's, it's really easy to, to get through and, and uh, really, really interesting stuff in there. Um, who are we talking to next week? We're talking to Dan Cub about code organization. Is that right? Yep. Uh, uh, disciplines. Coding code, disciplines. Coding disciplines. There we go. And then um, we have some other stuff coming down the, the, the pipeline and we'll, we'll uh, announce those as we get a little closer. Um, one other thing is we are going to be at RailsConf. Woo! 
sure. So uh, come and see us. Um, we might look a little different when we're there, but uh, should be fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll look totally different from how we look on the podcast. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> you mean by different, he means superior. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Embodied. Yeah. yeah, basically, you can check out the RailsConf schedule. We're doing a live recording of the Ruby Rogues episode. Yep. Uh, what's our topic? It's uh, what Rails developers should care about. Yes. Yep. And we'll, we'll take questions beforehand online and live in the audience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one last thing. We are in iTunes. So uh, if you want to go get the episode there, you can leave us a review there while you're at it. Um, if you're on some other podcatcher or something, um, then, you know, there's an RSS feed on the website that you can pick up the episodes from as well. So uh, with that, we also really appreciate your ideas and votes on our topic uh, suggestion. So if you go to rubyrogues.com, you can either click on the feedback tab or you can click on... Um, request a topic and or suggest a topic I think it is and um, then you can go ahead and put in what you would like us to talk about and then as it gets closer to the top then we uh, go ahead and attack those and uh, you'll notice that object oriented programming in Rails actually won't because if you go in it'll be marked off as completed um, was at the top it was actually at the top by double the next thing in the list 75 votes yep so we're going to make a whole bunch of people really happy so anyway um, but yeah or really mad (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's not what I wanted <laughs> so, you barely mentioned Rails. Yeah, who needs Rails? <laughs> anyway, so uh, that's it. We'll catch you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Ciao.